Hi, I want to welcome you to Growing Nimble Families. My name is Melitza. I hope this show is a place where mothers like you can safely explore a slower, simpler and playful lifestyle so that you can get to the heart of what your family needs to thrive both now and in the years to come. I'm excited to share this interview with you today because how to study seems like such a big thing, especially for school age kids. You probably remember friends who seem to have that photographic memory and never studied and those who had marathon study sessions that went on for hours. Maybe you were part of that or maybe you were the person with that photographic memory. During this back to school season, many families are starting to hear the phrase, study this work for a test or a quiz in a few days. There are really effective ways to study for a test that are best taught. Science shows that we remember when we learn in these particular ways. As early as third grade, and definitely by middle and secondary school, school age kids are tested regularly where they have to study something and then reproduce it in school. So they should learn how to best study. And that's where we can come in. As parents, we can support them at home to interpret that word study. What does study really mean? And guide them through the how to do it process. After all, good study habits stick. And if they learn to study well now, as they go through schooling, studying will not be a burden, but will be very matter of fact and just part of everyday school life. Being able to go over the work you've already done and revise it is a very different set of skills to the regular homework that they are used to being able to do. Things like writing a story, learning math facts, building a trebuchet, uh, completing the sheet or reading a book, that's a very different set of skills than learning how to study. And we recognize that. And some of the difficulty we have in helping our kids and the kids understanding is, is recognizing that they are quite different skills. Many a school-aged child who hears on Monday, for example, study for the quiz on Friday, feels that Thursday is the day to start studying. It is, in fact, cramming. While some may argue that there is a time and a place for cramming, it's not recommended as your only study method. And for many kids, it is the only method that they know how to study. Cramming is often ineffective for long-term memory use and reuse. Not always. Let's face it. Most of the studying that the kids will do, they want to reuse it and they want to build upon it. So we have to find different ways of learning how to study that's just not doing it the night before as the only method. I know studying doesn't have great memories and happy memories for everyone. Sometimes it's an unhappy experience and there's lots of frustration that's going on in the house perhaps with your own children and just it's not matching up to what you were expecting it to be. If you're having troubles with studying and and being able to explain different ways of studying, because kids sometimes study in a different way than how we ourselves as adults study, 
then this is the episode for you because in here we go through all the different ways that you can study and you might find something new for your child to be able to use. After this interview as parents, you'll have some resources and ideas about how to support your child begin with good study skills that will grow with them. So whether they are school age, five, six, seven and eight, you might be thinking this is a bit early, but it's just starting now to have the ideas about how to support. This is a good show for you. Maybe you're in the eight, nine, ten year olds and, and older middle school and higher. Already you will be hitting the study skills where kids are bringing homework and they need to practice and learn them for an activity at school to come. This is a great show for you to diversify the types of ways that they are studying, for you to learn the names yourselves and be able to help the kids to be able to do it. Don't worry if you have a middle school child, a secondary school or a high schooler and you're thinking, oh my goodness, I'm too late, I've missed out. You never are. There's always an opportunity to be able to learn something for yourself and for your kids to be able to learn too. And listen out for the resources so that they can um, have a look at what they are and get some learning in that way too. If we teach them the language instead of saying, did you study? If we ask instead, what type of studying did you do? We will help them to become more effective and more efficient at their studying. Of course, we'll need to know what that language is to ourselves because there are no tricks or shortcuts to studying. It's all about hard work and effort. Let's get to this interview. Today I'm talking to Cindy Waldridge, Cognitive Psychological Scientist from The Learning Scientists. It's a website about research-based learning strategies and more. And today we're learning how to share these with our children about studying, about learning, so that they can have a better chance of remembering the material, not just for the test, but being able to use it in life again and again. I'm excited to have you on the show, Cindy, to talk about learning strategies. What led you and your team to go down this path? Well, the um, three of us now, four, we uh, all kind of met in graduate school and we all were doing research on cognitive psychology and specifically on how it applies to education. Sort of separately, we all had these thoughts that, gosh, we know a whole lot about this, we don't really share it with anyone. We write it up in, in, in published journals, and nobody reads those except for the other people doing the research. It actually started with Megan and Yana. They started tweeting out to students, giving them ideas. They were students who were worried about tests, and so they started giving them some advice. And then from there it was, well, let's make a blog. And then from there it was, well, let's develop some materials that we can actually distribute widely um, to parents and teachers and students. Yeah, it's. I've really been enjoying going over to your website and seeing all the interesting things that you do, especially Twitter as well, and using that hashtag Ace the Test, being able to see yeah. lots of the little strategies that you've been you've been sending out there. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But I really wanted to talk to the parents today because you know our children come home with information from school, and sometimes in their planners it says something like "study for the history test" or "study your math." for the test tomorrow right? and you know we all look at that with varying degrees of horror 
because it depends on what our child is like, what that really means. I'll tell you a funny story. My son came home with a times table, one of those, you know, study for the times tables test. And he went off and he came back a little while later and he said, I've studied. And so we were saying, like, what did you study exactly? Just curious because he's young. Yeah. And he said, I'll show you. And he looked at the top and he looked all the way down to the bottom. And then he said, I've done it. There you go. Oh, goodness. And so we knew, because he had older brothers at the time, that we had some conversations that we needed to have about what does study for the test mean. But each of my children study in very different ways. As can you, How do you help parents when they get a note like that home that says study for the test? How can we be helpful to our kids? What would you suggest? So the first step is, of course, figuring out what, what the material actually is that they need for that test. That's probably the, most, the biggest challenge Yeah, <laughs> um, is, is finding out exactly what it is. But from there, you know, we have these six strategies for effective learning, and we'll talk about those um, here in a bit. But I think the, the biggest thing is if there's enough time in that planner that it's not the very next day, um, one of the biggest challenges, I think, is just getting students to space out that study. Um, to not just think, well, it's it's only homework the night before. It's a problem that we have with younger students. It's a problem that we have all the way through college students, right? Yes. That when they hear that there's a test, well, why would I study for that if it's not tomorrow? Right. One of the most effective strategies that we know of is, is spaced practice, that going over that um, multiple times, even if you spend the same amount of time on it. So imagine one hour per day for five days versus five hours the night before. Not that anybody's spending that much time yeah. on homework, but yes. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, five minutes over time versus um, the night before um, is actually going to have bigger benefits than, than doing it all that night. If you have enough time, that's the biggest one that you can do um, is just trying to encourage them to go over that material, even if they are just looking at it, although we know that's not an effective strategy, that even if they were only doing that, they would have bigger benefits doing that if they did it over time than if they did it the night before. Great. And so when is a good time to start teaching learning habits like these? Because you've you've mentioned doing the spaced practice and being able to do it over time. You know, there's lots of things that we're teaching our children at home. How do we start teaching those those learning habits? And what would you start with? Again, I would probably start with that spaced practice, spacing things out. But realistically, I would try to do as much of the good strategies as you can as early as you can. Create those habits very early on um, that instead of having a student who thinks that it's um, studying to just look over what they have in front of them or, or even to copy down. Um, so I have a 16 year old stepdaughter and when she has a study guide for a test, there are things listed and she goes and finds it in the book and then just copies word for word from the book, which we also know is not terribly useful. So I think that, uh, the earlier that you can start all of these strategies, the better. If we already have habits that have been formed and we need to make changes, Again, I think that spacing is probably the first one, but then the next one that we have lots and lots of really good evidence for is retrieval practice. So that's the idea of just having the problems and coming up with the solution for them or seeing the terms and coming up with the definitions yourself and then going back and checking your work and making sure that's correct. I mean, it's practicing retrieval. It's essentially testing ourselves, but we try not to use that word test because people don't like that word very much. (laughs) 
But that's that's essentially what we're doing is just trying to practice retrieving the information because that's what they're going to need to do later on. So I think that that's, it's an easy one. It makes sense to do that while studying. And so if you're kind of easing your way into that, I would say we start by spacing it out because that's an important one that we find people don't do ever. Yes. <laughs> um, and, then, and then to practice retrieving, I think, is, is very important too. Well, that's really handy because we're at home with the kids. That would be a good way when they come home with the the test dates that we can help them actually set out some sort of timetable for doing this type of spaced practice if there is time exactly. to be able to do that. So that's something that effective that we can actually do as parents rather than just think, how can I help? How can I help them right. to do things? But we can help them from the beginning with the spaced practice, knowing, okay, you've got five days. Like, How can you work it out so that you can do a little practice on each day? And the benefits of that, mm-hmm. that's perfect. So we've taught, you've mentioned two of them, and I know that there are six strategies for effective learning. How did you come by these six strategies? So the six strategies are specifically the, the strategies that have the most evidence demonstrating that they do work and we we don't have prescriptions here they're flexible principles so we essentially talk about um, what these strategies are in general but then it's kind of up to you to apply them to your specific situation but the, the strategies themselves that we chose came from the National Council on Teacher Quality came out with a learning about learning study in 2016 and these are the six strategies that were discussed most frequently and and talked about the evidence for them in that report. So in the report, they looked at teacher training textbooks. These six strategies are just not taught to teachers very often. And that's, it's scary, really, Mm. because these are the things that we have the most evidence from cognitive psychology uh, that aid learning. So we decided to focus on those six strategies because A, they have the most evidence behind them and B, people don't know about it. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's really good because if they, if you can share this information and then it will just change everything, the way in which you do things. And I don't think that you will feel so nervous about learning information and approaching testing and approaching doing any of that type of work if you have a foundation of what you're going to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think a lot of families have a, a worry about supporting their children because they don't know how and what to say and so I'm excited for you to share these six strategies so that they'll be able to say okay why don't you try some and be able to use the correct word and the kids will actually know what the words mean and and be able to to have something to do rather than what my son was trying to do which is just look from top to bottom and think that that was studying (laughs) well and and that's what students do right I mean in my college classrooms that's what students do they just reread their notes like well I looked at the notes again and so I've studied (laughs) yes yes and I'm so glad it's research-based as well so you know we've actually looked you've looked into that and made sure that it's current and relevant and then we can really use it so share a little about um, each of the strategies if you can please sure so I mentioned space practice which is literally what it says it means spacing out the study over time and that can be preferably over the course of days or weeks, um, because we know that that sleep boosts that effect. And I talked about retrieval practice, which is simply retrieving the information. So that's, even if you completely shut your book and took out a blank sheet of paper and just tried to write out what you know, 
any amount of retrieval is useful. And of course, you want feedback to make sure that you're doing it correctly. The other four um, I'll go through in turn here. The next is elaboration. And when we talk about elaboration, um, there, that can, word can mean a few different things. We're specifically talking about what we call elaborative interrogation, which is essentially just asking why. So um, it's elaborating on the material that you get in class to instead of just you know, memorizing this material, to constantly be asking, well, why is it that way? And what else could I find out about this? So in the information age, for students, that might look like um, them looking at the material and saying, huh, I think that's really interesting. I want to know more about that. And then going and looking it up on Google. Having that extra information makes the, the information stick. Instead of being an isolated fact, now you, you know something about it. So it's this rich availability to retrieve it. The next one is um, interleaving, which goes well with spaced practice. Um, interleaving is just the idea of, of switching things up. Um, so here, what parents could do is instead of uh, always studying um, in the same order that they get these um, subjects in order in their classroom, and so when they come home, we do their work in that order, just by switching things up and, and studying subjects in different orders, or if they've got you know tests coming up, switching up, studying one thing for a little bit, and then the next thing, and then maybe coming back. Um, that interleaving, again, boosts retrieval uh, or boosts learning. What's cool about interleaving is uh, when they look at things in different orders, sometimes what that creates is a realization that things go together, that, again, they're not just memorizing isolated bits of material, but that, oh, you know, what I'm learning in English actually has something to do with history. Um, and so they can make those connections a little bit easier, which again leads to deeper learning as opposed to just that surface level learning. Excellent. The next, the next one we have is, is concrete examples. Um, this might be a, a tougher one for parents. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. It depends on how much parents know about what their students are learning. Mm -hmm. um, but concrete examples is literally just coming up with real-world examples for material. Um, we know that students learn so much better if they can connect to what they're learning, if they see some example of it. And so concrete examples is just finding as many examples for the material as possible. Um, I mean, with math, it might be actually thinking about the, I don't know, groceries that they have and, and adding up, you know, uh, how many apples and oranges we have, that kind of thing. Yes. That becomes a concrete thing instead of the sort of abstract idea of addition. Yes. And so for every subject, as many concrete examples as you can come up with, the better students will learn that. Or again, the, the richer um, the learning will be, which is kind of the goal here. It's not just to memorize things, it's to understand them. Yes. The last one we have is dual coding. And this one I think could be really fun with children. So dual coding is simply the idea that we tend to learn things better um, when we have a picture associated with it why there's all kinds of figures and illustrations in textbooks, although they sometimes don't make the connection of what, what does this picture have to do with this page? Yeah. Um, <laughs> instead, dual coding is uh, coming up with some of those pictures on your own to so draw a picture about it or come up with a cartoon. In, on our blog, we have lots and lots of examples of different types of dual codings of infographics and Venn diagrams, those kinds of things that can help students 
to, uh, again, if they can, on a test, recall the picture associated with material, they're much more likely to remember that material. And again, it, it leads to this sort of richer uh, learning to understand how all these things fit together. Oh, that's really good. I'm glad that you went through all of them. And so we've got a good idea of what I, things that we can actually do. You say that the retrieval is often the one that's done um, a lot. And the first one that you said, which was the spaced practice, which ones would you say, is it, is it is the order that you've just said them in the frequency that you would encourage use? That's a good question. I don't know that I could say that necessarily. Uh, all of these things have their own unique contributions to learning. Okay. So any of these that uh, parents find easier to do, easier to encourage their children to do, any of these are going to produce boosts in learning. Right. Retrieval practice and space practice have the most evidence behind them, as far as research goes, that we know these work in lots and lots of different ways. The others also have lots of evidence, but those two that I mentioned are specifically because there's just this preponderance of evidence. They've been very, very well studied. We know that they are going to help for sure um, in lots and lots of different ways. The others, again, lots of evidence there as well, mm -hmm. um, just not quite as much. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking we, we, we do a lot of testing now with the children, and it may be very different to when uh, we as parents were... Um, at school ourselves and, and training or wherever we were and whatever we've been doing, there's just more testing about. And so it's trying to help the kids find a way to understand the material and not just let it go in one ear and like slip out of the other ear. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I often say to, I have three boys, I often say to them that we're just not learning the material for the test. I mean, this is for life. The, right. This is information right. that we want to be able to keep. And cramming the night before may mean that you remember some of it for the test the next day, but it really doesn't set you up for life and remembering that information and being able to use it. Am I correct or is this just a thing that... <laughs> oh, no, you're very, very correct. Um, in fact, I would, I would argue that um, it... So one of the things that we have as, as a sort of challenge in using these six strategies is that they are inherently a little bit more difficult than cramming or rereading or a lot of the study strategies that students naturally use. These things are a little bit more difficult to do, but we call them desirable difficulties. That's a term coined by um, Bob Bjork. So these, these desirable difficulties result in greater understanding, right? Yes. That you don't just have it for the moment, but you have it for a lot longer. So we have that dis the difficulty. I think what I would tell students is, while it might be a little bit more difficult now, if you can hold on to this information for your next history class, then that history class is going to be a lot easier, right? Right, Because you've got that, that scaffolding. Yeah. You've got that background material. You already know half of it when you go into that next class that I think, I mean, yes, for life, absolutely, but to get into a, a <laughs> a student's mind and try to convince them that yes. it's worthwhile yeah. maybe it's the fact that the next class is going to be a yes. lot easier <laughs> okay I'll stick with that <laughs> that might be more effective <laughs> do any of these strategies work better with say elementary students most of the research that has been done on these strategies has been done with college students and that is simply because researchers are at universities and the college student population is who they have yes but 
I will say, um, I know off the top of my head that space practice and retrieval practice have been studied in elementary schools and they do work um, just as well. Uh, in fact, possibly a little bit better. Um, the others, I don't know the research off the top of my head, but given what we know about learning, given how the others apply um, at that age, I don't see any reason why the others wouldn't also work in elementary school. They've been used in middle schools for sure. I'm trying to think ages for middle school is like 12, 12 to, to 14, 14 yes. something like that. Yes. Yeah. In elementary school, again, I don't, there hasn't been a ton of research done in elementary schools, but again, I can't imagine that these wouldn't possibly even work better in elementary school students than they do in college students. Great. Well, I think at least listening to what you've had to say, parents now have more options than just flashcards or the option that I gave you at the very beginning, which is just looking from top to bottom and rereading it. There's some other things that we can now ask our children about and teach them about how to be able to learn effectively so that they can use the material further on. So I, I think that's a win all round for everyone good, good. to be able to do this. Um, where can parents follow up with you and find out more information about the, these six effective learning strategies and, and this, the research that you have? Yeah, um, so we run a website called learningscientists.org. And on that website, um, there's a little navigation bar in the upper left-hand corner where um, you can either follow our blog. We have three blogs that come out each week um, on different topics. Um, but then we also just have our downloadable materials. So for every one of these strategies, we have posters, we have bookmarks, uh, we have PowerPoint slides, and we have some really, really cheesy videos um, that uh, students might enjoy. So lots of things that are completely free. We just want to get the information out there. If it would be worthwhile to read through them to make sure that you understand, um, you can get more information about them there. And then you can download some stickers and bookmarks if you want and put them all over your children's uh, textbooks. <laughs> oh, excellent. I'm glad that you mentioned all of those resources because it's coming up to summer time and school's out in many places. For, for some people, I know some people are going to be a bit, it depends on when you listen, I guess, to <laughs> when, yeah. when time is out. But when school is out, lots of parents like to give their kids a little bit of schoolwork every now and again to kind of keep their hand mm -hmm. in and keep keep going. Not too much, but a little to keep going. And this would be perfect for them to be able to start looking at some of these learning strategies and, and helping their kids with being able to do that. So I'm glad you mentioned those resources because I'll make a link of those in the, the show notes so that parents oh, have got a place to go and you know seek out some concrete examples and, and advice on how to help their kids at home. <laughs> I got that concrete example. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! I've been talking to Cindy Waldridge, cognitive psychological scientist from the learningscientists.org website, all about research-based learning strategies. Thanks for sharing your information today. And thank you for having me. When the kids are just starting out with learning how to study, it's often the notes that come home from school that say something like, just read over your work, don't spend too long. I understand why that's said, because I don't want young children spending hours on work or parents spending hours with their kids on that work. Also, we have to consider that as the kids are progressing through school life, then that 
thought of you don't need to spend too long or just glance over it needs to change. They need time to develop study skills that go beyond glancing over or short one-time looks. It's easy to see why kids get stuck here though and you can get them in upper elementary, middle school and even high school thinking that that's the way that they should study. They should just glance over their notes. They haven't changed the way that they've done any study techniques at all because that's what they were taught when they were younger and it's just not evolved and changed. They need to do more than only read over their work. This is why it's so important to talk to our kids about how to study. They need to be able to recognize for themselves the times when they do need to just look over their work and the times when they need to do space practice or spend some time finding those concrete examples, really taking the time to go over their work. Eventually, they'll become more reflective as they get older even though I was told to look over my work, I don't really understand this paragraph, so I need to look deeper, or I understand it really well, so yeah, all I need to do is look over it the night before, or two nights before, but they need to know when to do that. Learning how to teach the kids to study can feel like you're telling too much, or doing too much sometimes, I know that I felt that at times too, there's this give and take and crucially a time when they are kind of freewheeling. You don't know if they're going to be able to do it. They don't know. And they need this time to try and do it for themselves. There has to be this handover where they feel like they've got this, that we trust them to be able to do it. The, the teacher has said, or you the teacher has said, study this and that we have to let them try. We trust them and they do things that work best for them. Each of our children have their own unique personalities and we will see that manifested in the way that they study. They need to stumble and strive and make the progress when it comes to studying, which means we need to be a little hands-off as they're doing this. Maybe they study straight away when they come home. Maybe they want to have a little break. Maybe they need to walk around and study. Maybe they need to be completely still. Maybe they need to listen to music. Maybe they need absolute silence. These things are, are different for each of us. And we have to kind of find what that is. I know it can feel kind of tricky to really let them try because we know what works for us or what works in general. But if we let them do that, then it will be so much better for them. And we have all this time to be able to do this in elementary school and primary school, all the way through to middle and secondary school. There is time for them to be able to find out how to study best for themselves. Lots of schools have systems that you can sign up to where teachers can communicate with you via text. The system texts the messages of homework or links to textbooks or reminders links to the teacher's web pages even. Learning to study is teaching our kids how to access those messages too. Many of you can through an app on your phone or their phone or through their email systems too. Being able to teach our children how to access all of that is just as important as teaching them how to study because if they can't access it, they don't know where to go and get the information. So there's lots of information coming in from lots of different places 
And it's hard to remember where all those things are and, and do all of those things consecutively. So it can get really... It's easy to see how they drop things as, as they're going to middle school or, or secondary school. It's a lot of juggling and it's a lot of finding systems so that they can do these things for themselves. For example, while I've been recording this um, show, I've had a message come through on my phone for one of my kids that says that they have a science test on Thursday, which is in two days' time. Since it's Thursday, they have time to study in some different ways. When they get home, they get to decide what are they going to do and how are they going to do that. Maybe they'll do space practice or some interleaving, who knows. They'll need to check the resource themselves because I get a message, text message myself, but they have it set up in their email accounts so that they can go check that too. So if they need to check that resource, they should know already coming home from school, I hope, um, already, but if not, they go there and check that. Since this is a new system for them and a new start to the school year, I'm still there asking the questions. So I will say to them, what are you going to do and how? But I fully expect to pull back from this and I won't need to ask those types of questions every time I get a message. I know that they have homework. I know that they have to study. But they'll be able to kind of manage that more themselves. But right at the moment, we're kind of establishing the habits. So we want to make sure that we're establishing good habits. Eventually, he'll have a study system where I can check in only from time to time. It's a struggle, though, as a parent, because I'm wondering if they're going to do it right. I know how I would do it, and I wonder if they'll get distracted or do it in the right order. I'm considering all the other things that are going on in the night, and will they think about that too? But after asking them, I have to allow them to just get on and just do it. It's early in the school year. They can learn a bit about themselves. The, result, the results don't have a huge impact, so the stakes seem low to give them the opportunity for them to do their best right now. This is not a big end-of-term test or, uh, or examination that's worth a huge percentage of their, their grade. This is a, a good opportunity for them to, to practice and learn and try. It's hard to remember all of the six learning strategies and often we're not always there when they start their studying. So I would encourage you to look up the resources and I'll, I'll give a link to those in the show notes and print them as references for you and for them. No one is waiting around for you to explain elaboration or concrete examples. They can just go to the sheet for themselves. You can as well. We've got 101 things going on. So you can go back and have a quick look and, and check what it was that helps them. I love that there are bookmarks and sheets that we can use because we can leave them on the desk or in their homework area or even store them digitally in their Evernote or in the cloud or wherever it is for future reference. They explain the strategy and give examples. It's just perfect. I just wanted to have a, a quick note that how to study can be a hidden shame for some children. They don't have the parent to turn to at home to help them with study techniques 
or they're embarrassed to ask, or they just don't know who to turn to when they're struggling with studying. Maybe there's a language barrier, or the way the material is tested is different than what they're used to. They've moved from a different school district or a different part of the country or the world. There's so many things that can happen that mean that children just don't say why they're not able to study. All you see are the results and they're not very good and you just say, you've got to do better. But there's more to it than that. These bookmarks make a really good introduction to have in the binders. If you print off a few and put them in your binder, then your kids can share them with their friends. It's a good conversation piece. Also, when we're talking to our friends uh, about studying and, and what we're helping our kids with with our studying, it's a good thing to be able to share with our friends too because we all want to know a good way to be able to help our kids study. Study skills often show up in high school as a class to take, but with more testing at primary and elementary school, it's well worth slowly introducing the supporting skills like speed reading, scanning, searching for keywords, dictation, note-taking, and the many different ways like abbreviations and mnemonics like Roy G. Biv for the colors of the rainbow, using different color pens or the Cornell note-taking system and others, there's tons of them about. Not all at once, and not to all of the school-aged children. You have to see what works best for your kids. But slowly and age-appropriately over time, it's a great time to try this out, especially in the upper elementary and middle school time, because they learn to find out what works for them. Learning takes time. Cindy was talking about dual coding, for example, drawing diagrams and pictures to help remember how things are. Maybe for your child, their study technique would be vastly improved if they did just pictures and drawing and charts because that's how they learn. It clicks with them. Maybe they have that type of memory where they can see things on the page and it, it clicks. Maybe your child is the note taker and just learning how to divide up their page with different colors or in different sections is exactly what they needed, but they didn't know until they practiced or they saw somebody else using a different color pen or a highlighter. They need time to find the system or the things that work for them. Sometimes they might realize that some subjects they need the charts and some subjects they want to do the, the notes. It's good for them to see what works for them and their personality. I remember learning many of these during primary time lessons, but I don't think they'll be taught as much in school these days because there's just not the time. There will come a time, unfortunately, when the kids won't want to learn how to study from us or anyone. They have their way and it's hard to convince them to do it differently. As they get up there in age, they are overwhelmed as well with the sheer volume of work, play, study, rest, school cycle. It's harder to teach newer habits now and to get good at this new way of doing things. So watch out for leaving it too long. Teaching them young gives them a chance to pull from their ideas when things just aren't working or they might just remember that bookmark or website. And it also gives us time. 
we're not drilling and trying to get them to do things too early. We, we have to be age appropriate. So a six-year-old may not be into all of these, but they might enjoy dictation or they might enjoy playing around with note-taking. They may not. A nine-year-old might enjoy doing some of these other things. You know your child and it's the idea is to work with them. I'm not telling you when to start this, but you would know how to do this with your child. And I, we did this exactly this summer. This summer holiday, we had a chance to go through some of the videos and the practice some of the techniques. Um, we learned the language of space practice, elaboration, all of those, uh, and why that they are a good idea. Uh, my boys found it really interesting and they were really happy that they were learning many of these things already through school. And so that made them feel good. For me, it was the conversations that we were having about how they studied and how they'd seen friends studied, and we could all talk about that, that was really valuable, seeing how everyone gets to the end in a different way, but they still get to the end. Now we're in school, we can talk about what strategies they might be doing. Well, at the beginning of schooling, that's what we're doing. I'm sure they'll get this without all the extra hand-holding as they go through the, their school time. My role as a parent, other than to create the right type of how to study atmosphere, is to support them as they learn how. Part of that will be me showing, sharing, teaching and stepping back and letting them adapt, try, struggle and strive to find what works for them with me eventually being hands-off, organizing in detail their study schedule on a daily basis. I hope something I have said has triggered you to investigate something more and helped you to make a decision for your wonderful family. So now it's your turn. I'd love to hear about what happens in your family when it comes to how to study. Use the hashtag creatingfamilyhaven on Twitter and Instagram to talk about this episode or share your ideas in our Facebook group, the Society of Nimble Parents with School Age Kids. Thanks for being here today and I know there are many things that you could be doing right now and I'm, I'm glad you've chosen to be here. Don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment wherever you subscribe to this podcast. I know it seems like a small thing, but it's one of the best ways as it helps new people to find the show. Show notes for today's show with links for Cindy and all of her great resources from the learningscientist.org is found at growingnimblefamilies.com forward slash 205. That's episode 205. You can sign up for my growing library of parenting resources and principles over there at my site. See you again next time. Goodbye.